709 on CJAD. Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with co-host Josh Miller of Fuller Landau. Josh, how are you this evening? Always excellent, Dan. Excellent. And our guest tonight, we have from Calidus Capital, David Reese and Daniel Knafo. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, first, Josh, I guess we'll start at the beginning. Uh, uh, maybe David, Daniel, can you tell us a little bit about what Calidus Capital does? You uh, call yourselves al- alternative uh, finance, financing solutions for businesses. So tell me a bit about your business. Sure. Thanks, Dan. Basically, what we do is finance companies that have typically run into troubles with existing lenders. And so they are often companies that have uh, run into liquidity problems with their lenders. Typically, they'll be in special loans units of banks. And that would be 75% or so of our clients. The other 25% of our clients would be growth stories where they have, again, liquidity constraints uh, that their banks can't support. So we tend to fill a fairly specialized uh, little niche in the marketplace. Now, how did this, uh, you know, that's what you do today, and, and the company is operating, it's grown over the years. Tell us a little bit where it started and how, how the notion or the concept was conceived. Sure. It started with a fellow named Sam Fleischer, who is a South African uh, fellow who came to Canada in 1978. He's an accountant by training, and he ended up uh, purchasing a small company that was in trouble and working it out. Uh, with another partner, and they did that, ended up doing that two or three times over uh, the course of a number of years. And they noticed that there was a definite lack of financing for companies that had a reasonable story but didn't have the support and the capital to actually execute on things like orders. So Sam started the business uh, primarily as an inventory finance business that would lend against purchase orders. And so basically just finance an inventory, probably you know, $100,000, $200,000 at a time. And that's effectively how the business started. With his own funds or did he need to start off with other funds he right started, away? He started primarily with his own funds and then he ended up uh, partnering with uh, having a funding line from a U.S. Uh, financial institution that was in the asset-based lending business. And he did that for, uh, for a number of years and, and slowly grew the business over time. I would imagine because, you know, there, there's always this talk about risk and whenever you're thinking about lending funds or you're thinking about businesses, whether certainly businesses and special loans, there's, there's always a level of risk. How does risk get managed or mitigated at Calidus? It's a great question. And one of the things that we really focus on is the difference between perceived risk and actual risk. And it becomes somewhat theoretical. We'll look at a company that, has, that is in trouble often on, uh, you know, you could say on their last legs. And we will go in, and if we believe in the management, believe in the story, and believe that they'll be able to turn the company around, we will look at the asset quality that they have. And if the assets support our loan, we will actually go and and lend money into what most institutions, uh, by definition, would not lend into. And typically, we'll give more liquidity. We'll give higher advance rates against inventory, against receivables. We'll go in and try and actually understand the company, the process, try and value work and process inventory, et cetera. So, now, it's, it's great. I'm sure you've heard a lot of fantastic stories, and a lot sounds really believable. But it can't just be the words of the entrepreneur that you, you live by. You must go out. You must vet their story, you must go out and, and check them out a oh, little bit. Absolutely. We we do everything from soup to nuts. 
on all of our entrepreneurs, we do uh, third-party checking. Uh, in the old days, uh, in the States, there was a company called Kroll, K-R-O-L-L, that would do third-party investigations. Uh, so we it's police checks. It's the whole nine yards because we want to know who we're dealing with. We do a similar investigation against the actual assets in the company. So we will do field exams. Uh, we will do appraisals against inventory, receivables, etc., so that we really know uh, what we are lending against. And we do, obviously, we do legal checks in terms of security, registrations, etc. Was that has the process changed at all over the years? Was it pretty much that from the outset? I, I, I understood that certainly the loans at the beginning were much lower. So I wonder if uh, it was a little more shoot from the hip at first and a lot more processes after. I think it was a little more shoot from the hip at first. And again, to your point, Josh, the deals were smaller. And uh, just like any process, as we did more transactions, we learned things. And I can just tell you a quick example. We did one transaction, and everyone was sort of a little uncomfortable with the principal. The principal had a, a reputation that, that, that was not stellar, to be polite. Uh, but we liked the assets. We actually liked the management that ran that business. And the, and the entrepreneur that was above the company, we, we weren't 100% sure of. And uh, we ring-fenced the assets, did the transaction. And we sort of found out as we went through the piece that, that uh, we probably did not have a great borrower. And so the company ended up uh, being going into default effectively, and the company was restructured and sold. And from that point forward, which is about a year and a half ago, we actually went the extra step and as a matter of course now do a full background check on everyone. And, and our belief being that if we'd done the full background check at the outset, we would not have done that transaction. Our guest this evening on today's entrepreneur, David Reese and Daniel Canafo of Calidus Capital. Theory was fairly simple. We said... And I'll just make up an example. If there are 10 companies that make breaks, the top three are going to survive. So let's make sure that we're just we're lending to those companies. And that's effectively the position that we, that we took, and it did work well. So did the auto bailout uh, not affect people sort of down the, down the line? Oh, it definitely did. So you would have, in that same scenario, you would have seen if there were 10 brake manufacturers, probably the bottom four or five would have unfortunately fallen away completely. Wow. And certainly when, not that the banks are your competition, uh, sometimes they're, you know, as you said, special loans are a source of your business, but when they're getting more nervous, is that an opportunity for you guys to step in and look at the deal a little differently? Absolutely. What normally happens is uh, if a bank, if a company is going through sort of that transition where they go from being a traditional uh, client of the bank into the special loans unit, the client by definition gets uncomfortable gets nervous typically hires an outside advisor and typically we will we will hear uh, from those outside advisors if it's something that will fit with the type of business we do so our general origination source tends to be uh, consultants accounting firms restructuring professionals and that's uh, how we generally get connected with these companies at the outset and and the banks are quite happy to have us come in because typically we will take them out and usually at at full freight or something close to full freight so they're very happy to to have the loan go off their books and as a as a company goes into special loans generally the liquidity gets ratcheted down by the bank the bank's mo is to try and and reduce the exposure so when a company will come and say well i just got a purchase order for two million dollars 
I need another million dollars of liquidity so I can buy the parts and, and build out the order. And the bank will say, you know, I'm being a little harsh on banks, I apologize, but the banks will typically say, no, you're in special loans. Our, our goal is to get you from $15 million to $10 million of exposure. So we're not going to give you the additional exposure. In our model, we would sit and say, that's, that's, that's great. You're going to make good margin. And we would advance the additional funds. And the lesson there, Dan, as we've seen a long time, is entrepreneurs are opportunistic. Then they see a market, they got to go grab it. Indeed. Today's Entrepreneur on CJED at 7.23. 7.25 on Today's Entrepreneur. Our guests this evening, David Reese and Danny Knafo of Calidus Capital. And, you know, we were talking about entrepreneurs and being opportunistic. And, and David, you were mentioning earlier about uh, the, the, the original guy that started this, Sam. He started with his own money. Now, to grow a business at some point... OPM, other people's money. That's got to help you even take it to the next level. At what stage did he get there? Maybe you can kind of share with us that part of the story. Sure. Sam started the business in 2003 and shortly thereafter actually uh, teamed up with a U.S. financial institution that gave him a line of credit. And he ended up growing the business, uh, did a number of transactions a year, but I think he recognized that he was still capital constrained. And so in 07, he uh, did a, effectively a joint venture with a firm called Catalyst uh, Capital, which is a private equity fund manager, which is the current 95% owner of Calidus. They're, you know, sort of a three, three and a half billion dollar top performing fund um, in their space. And we are a portfolio company for them. And they're very supportive of our business. And the theory was that obviously, Catalyst, and I apologize, the names are so close, but Catalyst uh, could provide incremental liquidity and funding to Calidus. And there was uh, an original theory that there could be some cross-flow of transactions, i.e. if a company needed some equity in addition to debt, that perhaps uh, Catalyst could provide that equity. And similarly, Catalyst might see deals that required debt as opposed to the equity that they typically would uh, participate in. And you could have a cross-flow of, of transactions. What happened quite quickly was uh, the cross-flow didn't really happen because Catalyst grew quite quickly. And so their bite size became much too large uh, for Calidus deals. But they still provided uh, an enormous amount of funding for Calidus. And it really helped Calidus grow from sort of a $20, $30 million book up to $150, $200 million. Now, with such, with such a, a, a large new partner, cultures must have been rather different. Uh, you know, I can think of the, the, the David and Goliath and, and how does one work hand in hand with the other? How did the cultures, did, did, did one kind of take over the other? Did they blend? It's a great question. I, I think the cultures actually blended. Sam is a, is a very... Uh, uh, established uh, traditional asset-based lender in the distress space. And Newton Glassman, who runs Catalyst, uh, is a very bright fellow who's got a strong credit background as well. So the two of them, uh, when they joined forces, effectively formed the credit committee. And the deal they had was that they both had to be on side for transactions to take place. So my understanding, I don't think they were ever at odds in terms of actually doing the transactions. They both have slightly different backgrounds, and I think it played very well for the transactions in terms of coming up with an optimal structure and supporting the companies that uh, that we were lending to and building the business. 
did one have to agree with the other? Did you, you know, do you have, you're doing these deals and certainly there's a lot of important information and there's certainly a gut feel that comes yeah, with it. Ab- absolutely. And there were times, my understanding is there were times where early in the process, and let me take a step back. What typically we do is, is we have an origination source. Uh, we're, we're not a big shop. We're 12 people. And so we have originators that will find transactions and they're the first sort of uh, point of contact with clients. If they don't, if they don't like the transaction or they think there's something that's, that doesn't seem right, the transaction doesn't go any further. If it if it comes through the process, we talk about all the prospects weekly. We talk about all all our portfolio companies weekly, so people get uh, socialized, if you will, to the transactions that we're looking at. And and that weekly meeting includes, uh, if we're going back in time, it would have included Sam and and Newton. So there's lots of conversations prior to issuing term sheets, prior to issuing commitments, that uh, that that allow both Sam and Newton to talk about things they're concerned about. So it's very it would would have been very rare for them to to uh have a disagreement. A deal might have been killed early because one of them didn't like it and, it and a deal could have been killed if one of them said, you know, I just have a bad gut feel about it. And what what David of course is talking about is communication between partners, which doesn't always happen, but when it does, that's when the good deals come to play. And I know when we come back after the half hour, it's about people and it's about Maybe how do entrepreneurs get their financing as we uh, we bring that topic in? Today's Entrepreneur on CJAD at 7.30. Our system, um, but they actually have to get the client or the client's consultant to talk to us as opposed to they can't obviously send us information directly. Now, now what do you mean by actively market? You don't, you don't send an email blast directly to people. It's, uh, is it the lunches, the dinners, the occasional we half do glass send, of water? I yeah. mean. We actually do send email blasts every so often. But, uh, and it is, we've got <clears throat> probably about two or 3,000 people on our contact list that we'll send an email blast out to occasionally. But to your point, it, it is much more of a uh, calling people, going over for meetings, lunches, dinners, and just giving people updates as we do different things. If we change our structures at all, uh, we'll just we'll inform people as to as to what we're doing. Do you measure the success of your efforts? We we track uh, where we get all our deals from, and it's something that we look at on a monthly slash quarterly basis. And we also get some deals from uh, different appraisal firms as well. One just recently came in that we're bidding on, that uh, the the lead came from uh, an appraisal firm that we use. And so, not surprisingly, we, if, you know, if, if we will take that into consideration as we do future business. Now, let's switch gears a little bit. You're you're lending to entrepreneurs, and they need to fall in a certain category. They need to plan. You need to work off a business plan. They need to project. They need to have an idea of where they're going. That's great. You need it from your clients. But what about for yourselves? Do you guys do that for yourselves? Do you plan ahead? Do you do your cash flow projections? Do you do all the things that you suggest your customers do? We absolutely do, and it's <clears throat> excuse me. In our business, it's it's uh, it's interesting to do. Probably the same as any other entrepreneur. We will look out and, we, and forward, and we'll say, you know, this is our goal. We want to get to X millions of dollars outstanding. How many deals is that going to represent? How are we going to get there? We worry about things like portfolio concentration, etc., in different industries, and we monitor it effectively weekly. Uh, so it is something that we do. We update our our budget probably uh, informally three or four times through the year, but we go through a formal budgeting process uh, in the fall, and uh, and it gets rolled out at the uh, uh, early in the year with the limited partners of. Uh, 
of the hedge fund that, that effectively owns us. And it's an all-inclusive process? It's not one or two guys at the top saying, this is what we're going to do? It, it is all-inclusive. Some of the guys in the shop may feel that it's a little bit top-down, to be fair, but uh, it is all-inclusive. And we do uh, we do roll it out, and it, it affects people's compensation. So it's important that everyone understands how uh, how what our goal is for the year and how we're going to be uh, how we're going to be measured and compensated. Competition. Do you follow your competition? We do, and we can follow it. Uh, our, our industry is a, effectively a private industry, so there's not public stats as there would be for league tables with you know public bond issues or public equity issues. So it's a little more challenging, and our website would be no different where you know people could go online and read our website, and they wouldn't really get a great feel for how many deals we've done or what we have outstanding. So people are fairly protective about that information. Where you see it is uh, particularly in uh, dip financings, debtor and possession financings, which are on the public record. So you can look, uh, I think last year there were 18 dip financings done in Canada. Um, and uh, so you can see we were in there doing some of the dip financing. You can see some of our competitors doing it. It publishes the rates, et cetera. So it's, it's, a, it's an area where you can, you can see things. We lose deals from time to time, and we'll be told by our, our potential clients, you know, we found someone that was a point cheaper or someone that, that wasn't, uh, you know, that was more flexible in some areas. And similarly, as we win deals, we'll be told you won this deal because you were more flexible or could give us a higher advance rate. So you get that kind of anecdotal feedback, but it's, there's, not a, there's not a league table that you see in, uh, in equity, public equity or public debt markets. Now, you must see all different kinds of entrepreneurs, and some are a little more prepared and some are a little less prepared. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of uh, turn to Patrick uh, a little bit on this one, seeing a, as, Patrick, you've seen many businesses, sometimes at the later stages of their uh, successful life, but certainly during their, their growth periods as well. Have you noticed, uh, I guess, differences between entrepreneurs and what made them successful? Did they plan better? Do they communicate better? What's been maybe one or two of the areas that they've worked? Uh, obviously, proper planning makes the whole difference. Uh, people who budget, people who not only prepare budgets, but follow them uh, and monitor the results. Uh, is there a key uh, to being successful or non-successful? There are, there, I call them challenges. Uh, you have entrepreneurs that are very, very strong in selling their product and developing, developing products. Others are very strong on the administrative side. I think it's a combination of both that's required to be successful. You have to have that eager, that, that, uh, that eager for business as much as you need to have somebody b behind you that is going to say, hey, we'll hold back a little bit because you, this is going too fast. We're not going to be able to support that growth. And have you seen that entrepreneurs learn how to communicate with their financial institutions because at the beginning or at the, the outset when they're first getting to know them, it's, it's dating. They don't really know how to react or how to deal with them. So there must be an evolution in knowing how to deal with your financier. There's, uh, there's definitely an evolution. Businesses that are doing extremely well, that are very successful, have a relationship with their banker where the banker will obviously call upon them regularly to set up appointments and meetings and you know satisfy whatever needs they may come up with. On the downside, when a company is going through tougher times, the banker will call for a whole set of different reasons and the entrepreneur will definitely be very shy and sometimes will just withhold information from their banker because they're worried of the consequences of what they're going to be discussing with their banker. But the reality is 
better to be upfront, better not to have them find out after the fact. I would, I would suppose, uh, David, you would agree and let, let the cards be on the table upfront because you're going to find out sooner or yeah, later. Yeah, absolutely. We, we do, uh, we do, uh, Borrowing bases weekly. We do daily cash reconciliations. We do quarterly audits. Uh, people will find out. One of our mantras in our company, and we we tell all our clients this and potential clients is, we don't like surprises. So if something bad happens, tell us. Similarly, we actually don't like good surprises either because if we get a good surprise, i.e., something happens and you haven't told us, then we get nervous that you're, you're going to not tell us something bad happens. So generally, we we talk to our clients on on a on a a highly regular basis. We visit them on a highly regular basis and we just we we want to know what's going on good or bad and to be honest if it's something bad chances are we can help them. How often does a client paint a let's just say a rosier picture than uh than is reality? The the proverbial hockey stick projection? Gee. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever seen that. Patrick, have you ever seen a ro- uh, hockey stick projection? <laughs> not really. Uh <laughs> Normally, people have a tendency to portray their businesses as doing very, very well, uh, and they will the, the 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 hurdles that they come across, as uh, we were discussing off the air, they have a tendency to say, "Hey, you know what? I've been through this. It, we, we've managed. We've pulled it through." And sometimes the problem gets to uh, to be so big that they 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 keep you know keep shying away from facing the reality. Yeah, yeah but, I, I would agree with that, and I think that. Uh, one of the things that we we try and drill down when people give us projections is to see how realistic they are and one of the comments i would make is that entrepreneurs generally aren't entrepreneurs because they're good at finance or good at accounting they they, they tend to be entrepreneurs because they can build something sell something etc and a lot of our clients especially some of our smaller clients i would say would be weak in the finance area and and it's uh so it becomes a bit of a challenge you know, obviously we're in finance and that's what we do so it becomes a bit of a challenge in terms of being able to rely on the information that we see the systems they have in place etc so it becomes it becomes an issue that we look at very very closely today's entrepreneur on cjad more with david reese of calidus capital and patrick sullivan trustee with fuller landau after the break at 746 750 on today's entrepreneur inspiring stories from outstanding business people dan delmar along with josh miller of fuller landau and our guests this evening david reese of calidus capital and patrick sullivan trustee and partner at fuller landau we're talking about uh, alternative lending and uh, josh well some sectors are easier to lend to than others I, I was actually wondering if we were talking, you know, are there any sectors or industries that, uh, you know, you guys or banks that you're aware of really are staying away from these days? In our case, we stay away only from really two sectors. One is uh, real estate development, so someone building a condo or a subdivision. And we stay away from it because there are a lot of priority claims that can come in ahead of us. You have completion risks. They tend to be log- longer-term projects. So we're just not really set up to do that. So we stay away from real estate development projects. Um, and we also stay away from, from natural resource exploration. We would do a producing mine. We would do service companies related to oil and gas and mining. But if we've got the, not to be flippant about it, but you've got two guys and a shovel and a pickaxe, we don't understand that stuff. Like it's just, you know, we're not going to lend against that. So those would be the two sectors that we tend to stay away from. Patrick, what are you uh, what are you seeing out there? Well, if if you're looking at traditional banking, the bankers will always say we lend uh, we lend money. We're in the business of lending money, so we don't have any particulars that we will not lend on. 
but uh, suffice to say that their appetite for certain industries aren't as as strong as for others. Uh, and as uh, we were seeing, construction is definitely one where it's not always easy. Uh, the risk factor and the, 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 the various priorities that come into play. Uh, obviously, if you're in the gas industry and those types of industries where there's a lot of hedging and you're financing hedge funds and et cetera and futures and whatnot, Bankers have a tendency to look at these and not necessarily understand them uh, the, the, way they, uh, the way they would. But all in all, they will tell you, we finance anything. If it's financeable, we're there. Now, we're talking, we talked a little earlier about asset-based lending, which is not the typical conventional lending. Uh, Patrick, perhaps you can just fill us in quickly on the differences or the main differences you see uh, for entrepreneurs when they're looking it up between the asset-based lending, or ABL, and traditional well the the asset-based lending is is a vehicle where uh, traditional bankers will not do the same type of follow-up that is done in the ABL the risk factor is higher in ABL the challenges are different obviously if you're uh, in an ABL situation you're sustaining rapid growth you don't want to dilute yourself you don't need a partner you have the orders you have the inventory and the bank will lend you money on those assets in particular with all the follow-up that's required, namely inventory appraisals, field examiners that go in and check the books to make sure that whatever you're reporting on an ongoing basis is, is verifiable in their, in their books. So the main difference is between traditional banking where every month end you are to provide your bank with your position 20 days after month end, in ABL, your, your line of credit is established almost on a daily or weekly basis as opposed to one month after the fact. And that's the beauty of ABL. Uh, the, I think that the best sales part of that type of product is if you do a sale this Friday for a million dollars to your key customer, we will lend you 85% next Monday on that million dollars of sales instead of you waiting 20 days after your month end in order for the the bank to review the line of credit and your availability, that's the that's the main target. And entrepreneurs using ABL, it might make them better business people. And I think we'll explore that when we come back after the break. And David Reese of Catalyst Capital will give us his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. That's after the break. Remaining moments of today's entrepreneur, our guest this evening, David Reese of Catalyst Capital and Patrick Sullivan, trustee and partner at Fuller Landau. Now, before we get to uh, David's one piece of advice, Patrick. Uh, we were talking earlier about the, the onerous reporting to, uh, to ABL financers, but that could make an entrepreneur a better business person. Maybe you can comment on that and what you've seen. The, the, the beauty with this reporting is it, it, it forces the entrepreneur to review his weekly work, to see how he's doing on his sales side, to see how his receivables are performing, to see what's going on with his inventory. So the beauty of that is that instead of sometimes looking at this only once or twice a year when it's budget time and so on, they're obliged to see it almost on a weekly basis, if not on a daily basis, because that's how they can monitor how they're going to get their availability. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And, and virtually all of our clients, uh, because of the increased reporting, generally they don't like it at the beginning. But within, you know, pick a time frame, one month, two months, three months, they all say that it gives them a much deeper understanding of how their businesses actually run. And to Patrick's point, they're on top of it because they see it every week in terms of the reports they have to send in to us. 
and I would imagine, I mean, that you know, some and some entrepreneurs are really up on their their sales and they're up on their receivables, but maybe they they won't really be picking up on all the inventory because entrepreneurs love to buy, <laughs> uh, you know, they they're into their products. So sometimes this also brings about, hey, you know, you have an aging of inventory, and there's something you bought a year and a half ago that's still on your floor. Absolutely. So now that takes us to towards the end of our show, and David, uh, in the experience you've had, whether it be at Calidus or prior. Uh, what one piece of advice would you give to today's entrepreneur? I think uh, making sure they have a strong handle on their on their finances and their financial outlook. And if they do run into a problem, to recognize it as early as possible and try and solve it. Because we unfortunately see companies, and the phrase we use in our industry, which is not very nice, is we'll see companies that are too far down the death spiral and you can't bring them back. And generally, it's you know they've been put on COD. They've lost some of their key employees. They've lost some of their key suppliers uh, and, and pardon me, customers. So sometimes, unfortunately, it does get too late for a company to come back. So if there's a problem, I would say you know address it right away and be trans as transparent as you can and uh, and just try and get it solved. Excellent. And Dan, I'll tell you my other takeaway from this, and it was mentioned earlier in the show when Calidus is checking out and making sure that they want to lend to their customers, they check them out and they mm. vet them out. And entrepreneurs are usually so uh, so eager to sell, they don't always realize or check out who they're selling to. Now, it's different when you're lending money to a company, but even if you're whatever service or product, you got to check out your customer. you got to know who you're selling to so you don't end up on the wrong end of that stick and at the death spiral. David Reese of Calidus Capital and Patrick Sullivan, trustee and partner with Fulando. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank Josh, you. Uh, we're back in two, two weeks, weeks from now, and it's the Spice Station on Today's Entrepreneur, Monday nights at 7 on Newstalk Radio, CJAD 800.